0: With me today is Professor Brian Cantor, who is a strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment. Based in Cape Town, Brian, you sent me three pieces of work. Thank you for joining me, by the way. You sent me three pieces of work, and two of them were relating to the US economy, the world's largest economy. And the first one was to do with the US yield curve. And I want to start with that one before we get onto growth and how to take advantage of growth in the United States from an equity point of view. But first of all, let's tackle the inverted yield curve. Do you believe this story, as many people do, that it's a predictor of a recession?
1: Well, it certainly has uh, recession in mind because recessions or the state of the economy more generally influences the direction of interest rates. So if, the will, if an economy is to slow down, then interest rates, at, especially at the short end, will, will, will be reduced. And uh, if the economy picks up momentum, it's very likely that interest rates at the short end are set by a central bank Will, will rise so so the yield curve essentially is anticipating those those interest rate moves
0: and historically it has predicted recessions in the past and the question is now of course how, how long in the future is this going well, to occur should it occur is it going to be six in six months time in 18 months time? what is your opinion
1: Well well the, the yield curve is a, is a reflection of a of market view it's a sort of consensus view about the direction of the economy and the consequential movements in interest rates but it's not uh, predetermined it 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 changes people's views change as the news changes as the data suggests otherwise so at any moment in time there's a, there's a view on the outlook for interest rates not not only over the next 12 months but actually over the next 12 even even 20 years so the market takes a view and then that view can certainly change in fact the last uh, week or so, that yield curve that was inverted in other words, short rates uh, are higher than longer rates, which is unusual yes. uh, that's actually termed something like normal, where longer rates are a little bit higher than than short rates, and that indicates that the uh, view on the American economy has changed again yeah. so, so less less fear of recession currently priced into the yield curve yeah,
0: we've got to, so what we have now is the sort of nascent emergence of a normal yield curve. That's the first point. The second point is you, you say that things change when it comes to interest rates very quickly, and how dramatically that was illustrated in December when every single market commentator and every single market instrument related to interest rates in the United States or America was predicting two or even three interest rate rises in the United States. And then along comes the chairman of the US Federal Reserve and says, No, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. And the market was turned on its head, Brian.
1: Well, I would interpret it with due respect somewhat differently. The Fed had a view, and the Fed's view on interest rates was made explicit in, in terms of what is described as the dot plot. So each member of the Fed governing body, the Monetary Policy Committee, had to indicate where they thought interest rates would be going over the next 12 months and and all of them had put in increases in interest rates now the market as revealed by the yield curve actually took a different position the market didn't believe the the fed's position on interest rates and in fact the market said no 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 you're moving too fast this economy is slowing down it's not picking up momentum you You've slowed momentum. You shouldn't be wanting to to raise interest rates further. Remember, there were four, four increases in interest rates through the course of 2018. So the market actually stopped the Fed in its tracks, not, not the other way around. The market said you can't do it. Now, now the logic of that is if, if you have an inverted yield curve, say one-year rates are or two-year rates are below three-month rates, if you raise three months rates, the one-year rate and the two-year rate are likely to go down, not go up. So in fact, it's it vitiates the intended impact of a of a, uh, of a rate increase at the short end. It meant to slow the economy down, but in fact, further out on the yield curve, interest rates fall. That's not going to slow the economy down. So in fact, the the market stopped. The Fed, the, and I, I, I describe it as the market rules okay, and I think that's the, <laughs> the lesson here, the market rules. Yes. And the Fed, in fact, has to take the market's view very seriously simply on, on the logic of the market's
0: view. The market rules okay. That was a very famous, or rather is an interpretation of a very famous piece of graffiti that appeared on a wall, I think, in the 1970s in London or something like <laughs> that. But has the market got it right, <laughs> Professor? Because... The, 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 well, the economy is not slowing down. I mean the, Last month, for example, yeah. in fact, this time last week, 196,000 new jobs were declared by the United States Labor yeah. Department or whatever it's called. Yeah. And yes. GDP is ticking along at whatever it is, 3, 3.1%. Yes. So maybe the market's got it wrong this time.
1: Yes, yes. I think the market uh, got too nervous. So what's, what's important is the confidence with which the market forecasts the future, particularly the future of an economy. And the the less confident the uh, forecasters become, that is the investors become, the more volatility you introduce into the market. And that's what happened in December. The mood became very uncertain, or more uncertain, more unusually uncertain. And so... uh, a volatility increase in other words, daily moves in the in the stock market were were wider than than usual and and the vix the fear index jumped up and and when that happens uh, the prices of shares fall a, a, almost auto automatically more risk lower prices to give you higher expected returns so so the market i think was too, was too nervous and you you would have been well advised as an investor to have ignored that. Right. And now the market, I think, is recognizing that in, in fact it got it wrong and that we may well be at another sort of inflection point where the economy stopped slowing down, which it was slowing. It was slowing, definitely, and now it may be picking up momentum again. And that's that's very reassuring to investors, so, so I th- there is evidence from China from the u s uh, from emerging markets not not from Europe yet that in fact we may have bottomed out again, so're we're, we're turning rather than deteriorating, turning up rather than rolling rather than down in in terms of economic activity globally and that's that's good news.
0: It is good news, and that brings us beautifully onto the next piece that you kindly sent me. The headline of which is "The Market and the Economy: Not an Obvious Relationship." You say, "Well, recently the market has bounced back, obviously after that uh, rather unpleasant December where the S and P fell nine percent, but now it's got all that back plus more." And you talk about um, raising a key question here: Could you make a fortune? You say, buying or selling shares, accurately forecasting U.S. GDP growth rates over the next few years. The answer you. Got I want to say, is a highly qualified and only possibly yes. Yes,
1: you say. Yes. Well, if you could forecast the economy better than everybody else, you as an individual had some kind of divine uh, powers, divining powers to forecast the economy. And the economy surprised every everybody else. And you knew that the surprise was coming, but nobody else did it. Then you could do very well. The, whether the surprises were uh, surprisingly very fast growth or surprisingly very slow growth, you could you could make a fortune betting against the market, which had a had a different view. But only in those circumstances, and those are very very demanding circumstances. So you've got to, in fact, forecast surprises, big surprises. If you could do that. Uh, you would you would do very well in the stock market, but I, I, I explain that that's very difficult to to hope to do because there are a lot of people out there looking at the same data, using similar forecasting methods, all trying to, in fact, anticipate where the economy is going. And they they don't wait for the economy to reveal itself; they act in advance, and that's the nature of of markets. Markets are always. Forward looking. If you've got superior information, yes, you can beat the market. But the presumption of superior information is a very difficult one to defend given the competition, given the rewards for superior insight, which are potentially. Enormous, beyond the dreams of Everest is a phrase that I I like to use.
0: Okay, what about this phrase then that you like to use as well in the piece that you again kindly sent me? The statistical relationship between quarterly growth and returns over the entire period between 1967 and 2018 is altogether a very weak one. Linear regression Mm -hmm. equations that explain returns with quarterly growth rates have very little explanatory power.
1: That's another yes, that's, phrase
0: that's confusing me, given what you've just said.
1: <laughs> well, it doesn't. It, it, the relationship between the GDP and its growth, and remember we're talking about real GDP, quarter to quarter, annualized. That's quite a variable number. It changes a lot. It goes from one to two, back to one and a half, up to three, and and so on. And then And then you look at returns, which are smooth their annual returns remember when we we look at the market we're looking at it very much in hindsight we're comparing the share prices today with the same share prices 12 months ago that's that's a long time and all the action in the marketplace takes place not only on a daily basis but on an intraday basis so the point I'm making is uh, being, you know, having superior knowledge of the cycle or knowing the cycle won't necessarily do it for you. That's why I came back to the, the notion about beating the market by recognizing in advance as the market always tries to do what's going to happen. And if there's a big surprise, you may get it, you, 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 and you're on the right side of that surprise, you will do very well. But uh, I think it's 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 not a task I would I would set an investor. Yes, maybe a hedge fund, but. But uh, I think the implication of that, of that weak statistical relationship, is ignore it, ignore the noise, mm. focus focus on the long term. If if I could force the forecast the South African GDP growth rates, real GDP growth over the next ten years, I I, I, I would be in a very strong position to to invest wise, wisely. So it's. It, Again, it's about long-term investing, about staying the distance, about finding companies, companies that have superior capabilities that the the marketplace has not fully recognized. That's the art of, of investing.
0: You talk about superior knowledge. And before we get on to South Africa, you do seem to have superior knowledge. And although you're a modest fellow and you'll, you'll, you'll poo-poo what I've just said, you do have. So give us some kind of insight. Just give us a taster of what you think. The market got it wrong. The Fed did one thing. The market said, no, you're wrong. What about now when we're talking about the United States of America so we can try and apply some of your superior knowledge?
1: I think the, the, these are good times for for, for business and for enterprise. So what, one of the consolations I take is from events is how good, particularly American, management is. The, the, the art and science of, of managing businesses, I think, is, is as advanced as, as it has ever been. And the, the potential to adopt modern technology, particularly managing data, Managing information, I think, gives uh, gives American business and business generally that uh, that uh, is highly competitive and adapts and adopts new new methods very easily. It gives uh, it gives business lots of opportunity, and, and shareholders in those businesses are really, in a way, privileged to share in the in that upside. Uh, just a, it's not without risk. I, I would say if you had a left wing democratic uh, government in America say say the democrats of the progressive kind yes who are essentially anti-business i mean that's that's their nature if they took control of america i think the outlook would deteriorate uh, if you come to south africa i would say if we adopted more enthusiastically best practice best economic practice which is to stay out of the economy and let business get on with it and compete openly and freely for all the business that's that's available. We we would do much better if we saw that happening in South Africa, a reversal of really what has been a much interfered with economy and a much interfered with business sector. If we saw some kind of reversal, our our prospects would would improve. Our, the risks of doing business in South Africa would, would decline, the required return on investments would come down, and our economy would easily, could easily and should do three, four percent a year uh, of growth, which we, that's the least we should be expecting, given the technologies available, given the uh, potential and the potential in our, in our people. Which we're not, which we not exercising.
0: No, we, I think the general consensus view is that a potential has been thwarted by interference and intervention. And this is a neat segue into um, South Africa and the South African economy
1: and its uh, yeah. potential future. Um, yes. You... Yes. Well, just a point here: yeah. we don't yes. we don't give enough emphasis. And this is the point I made in my one piece on how to exploit this new gas find and oil find, which is potentially game-changing. But what would change the game is if we stopped imposing constraints on those who would uh, uh, you know, extract the oil and, and distribute in the form of all sorts of transformation and other requirements. Those, those inhibit uh, efficiency. In fact, when you look at it say, And and that's a point I make. I say what what we should be doing with this oil fund is maximizing output. That should be our primary consideration. We shouldn't be saying who's going to benefit from this this output. Which particular group of entrepreneurs are going to have uh, particularly favorable opportunities? Which construction company is going to get the work? And how is it going to subcontract to, you know, favoured favored, favored uh, uh, subcontractors, all of that stuff is, is bad for business, bad for the economy,
0: but there has bad
1: to be for a... the poor, bad for the poor. Mm. There has Maybe to be a tender, tender process, though, though, Brian. Hmm?
0: Sorry to interrupt you. There, there has to be a tender process. You can't just uh, say, right, let's get the person that can dig the most out of the, the bottom of the sea 150 kilometres off the South African coast and 10 k- is down or whatever the logistics well, well,
1: are. Now, the find has been made, despite, and this is the positive, despite all the uncertainties about mining in South Africa, oil, ex, oil extraction in South Africa. And in fact, the, the rules haven't been changed. It was a, there was an intended change in the mining chart. It hasn't come through with regard to oil exploration. That's the old rules. Now, for all the uncertainty, Total, this French company, and his partners took on major risks expensively sunk a deep sea well or a deep sea hole and and found you know, found and significant finds. So, so it's the, at the moment it's theirs. but of course the rules the rules can change with regard to who benefits. Now now you've got to get that oil onshore. you've got to build uh, pipelines, you've got to have distribution facilities onshore. you've got to have terminals you got this is a huge construction project, potential. Now the question is, how do you go about that? And you go about it best with highly competitive tenders. You tender on price. You tender, yes, the the tenderer has to have the the capability, so there is a qualification there. You must be capable. But that's all. You do business as, as you would do anywhere else or, well, in many other parts of the world. You do it on competitive terms, not on uh constrained terms of the kind we we have in south
0: africa and you use the example of the chinese money toad when you talk about this massive one billion barrels of wet gas potential potentially being the size of this finding which is brawl you say the mythical chinese money toad usually depicted as a bullfrog is associated with the attraction of wealth the wealth from south africa's own recent gas and oil discovery nicknamed brawl Bullfrog in English needs to be well managed, and we've spoken about it. So, but I want to broaden the discussion as we c- conclude our podcast, Brian, into applying that sort of principle to the whole of South Af- the whole of the South African economy, well, and right. the whole of the South African economy's potential.
1: Yes, yes. Well, that's a, that's why I say, well, yes yeah, a new start. We can make a new start with something that's really very, very significant. That's what I've argued for. Let's let's make a new a new start. The 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 old ways, which, which I think you could describe as crony capitalism, sort of institutionalized crony capitalism, has not delivered the goods. It's done well for some. It certainly hasn't done well for the poor of South Africa, who need who need jobs and they need income. And if if our focus was on on the poor and their welfare, we wouldn't be doing the things we are doing to to qualify. A competitive business in the way that we've done. I think that's severely inhibited growth and given given the wrong signals to uh, those who aspire to to wealth. How do you get wealthy in South Africa? Well, not necessarily by delivering you know, goods and services to the consumer at favourable terms. That's that's not necessarily the way, the best way, as we as as we've seen, and that particularly applies to doing business with the state owned uh, enterprises. I mean, the scale, the scale of the uh, corruption of that process of doing business is just uh, mind-blowing. I, mm. I, I don't think I ever appreciated how, how big the numbers were in mm. terms of the benefits of corruption.
0: Yes, it is very scary. There will be books coming out every single two or three months for the next five years about exactly yes. what has happened, but let's not focus on the negative. You say, yes. the, the notes that I've scribbled down as we complete this chat is you You like the idea of competitive capitalism when it comes to the tender process for something like this oil and gas discovery exploitation, but you also combine that with social redistribution of wealth. You say the extra revenue in your final paragraph could be spent for the benefit of the poor in better funded schools and hospitals or cash grants, maybe even lower taxes, uh, a case for growth and then redistribution rather than erratic redistribution at the expense yes. of growth. So there's two aspects yes. to this as South Africa continues to grow as an economy and a relatively new democracy.
1: Yes, well, we need that. Yes, well, we want to grow the tax base so that we can help the genuinely disadvantaged and those who are advantaged uh, compete, compete with each other. That's That's the it's democracy with rule of law with respect for for the competitive process that uh, that capitalism offers it, it it doesn't happen automatically you need you need support from the um, broader society support in the form of uh, fair fair legal practice or laws that uh, contracts and, and, and all, all that stuff. You can't take it for granted. And we haven't had enough of the good stuff in, in South Africa.
0: Not for a long time. Professor, thank you very much for your time, your insight. Fascinating stuff. That's Professor Brian Cantor, who is a strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment based in Cape Town.